How true that is. He's precious, is he not? And what a great word to describe what our God is to us. He's just precious. And uh, thank God for the preciousness of our Savior. Well, how many of you brought your Bible this morning? Will you hold up the Bible all over the building? And if you will, I'd like for you to join me in the Bible this morning in page number 100, I'm sorry, 1002 this morning, 1002, or the Gospel of Matthew chapter number 6. And uh, Matthew's the very first book of our New Testament. And if you just find that book and then chapter 6, I want to read some verses here and then ask you to follow me along as we kind of work our way through this little text here this morning. And I pray God will use it uh, to help us uh, as uh, we live out our daily lives in these last days. Let me remind you of our service again this afternoon at 5.30. Hope you'll be here for that. That is one of those non-mask services. However, I look around, I see some people in here this morning have masks on, and I wanted to tell you that if, if uh, that makes you feel more comfortable to wear a mask, wear your mask. Uh, but don't lay out of church. Come to church tonight, 5.30. We're looking forward to having a good time together in the house of God. 5.30. Tuesday night, Brother Jody Harrison uh, is the pastor of Bethel Baptist Church down in Nashville. He was here last year and uh, preached for us, and so many people had so many good, positive things to say about that. And so he's coming back. He'll be back on Tuesday night at 7. That, again, is a non-mass service. However, uh, uh, if you want to wear your mask, just do what you got to do. I mean, if, if it makes you feel comfortable to bring a can of Lysol with you, I mean, and spray down everybody gets around you, fine with me. Just don't spray me with that stuff. And I won't try to get them. But, I mean, whatever you got to do to stay comfortable, please feel free to do that. But don't quit coming to church. Amen. God can take care of us, and I trust that he will in these days. All right, Matthew chapter 6, if you're there, would you say Amen. All right, I want you to look this way, if you will. You know, for quite a while, off and on, we've been making our way through the uh, opening book of the New Testament, the Gospel of, uh, according to Matthew. As I said previously, Matthew wrote his Gospel to introduce the people of his day as well as the people of any day, our day, and any day he wrote this Gospel to introduce us to Jesus as the King. Matthew himself had met the king. Brother, uh, uh, Brother Allen was singing about that a moment ago. Boy, that was the day that a beggar met the king. But uh, he himself had met the king and then made it his life's ambition to introduce others to the king as well. And he did that not only by word of mouth, but he also did that by pen and by paper. You see, Matthew, after he met the king, he began to follow the king. And as we have noted, he was a formally, he was a tax collector. He got up that day, went no more back to tax collecting. From then on out, he was following the Lord Jesus. Well, as being a tax collector, he was good at keeping records and keeping accounts. And as he began to follow the Lord Jesus, he started keeping an account of the life of our Lord. As Jesus would speak, Matthew would write. As Jesus ministered, Matthew watched. And then he would rush home. And at the end of the day, he would write down everything that Jesus had done. And then sometime after the death and the burial and the resurrection of our king, the Lord Jesus, Matthew, while under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote down all of those records that he had compiled into a book that we know as the book of Matthew. Of course, his purpose now is to get us to see that Jesus is not just the Savior, though he is the Savior, he is also the king. Now, we've worked our way all, uh, up all the way to Matthew chapter number 6. 
And our text this morning deals with a very, very, very familiar portion of Scripture. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to stop, and I'm going to read the Scripture, but I'm going to ask you to, to read this along with me, all right? Matthew chapter number 6, and we're there in beginning in verse number 9. Now, this is commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer. Many of you could shut your Bible this morning and quote this from memory. So I'm going to ask you to read this along with me, beginning in verse 9. After this manner, therefore pray ye. Now, here we go. Join in with me. Ready? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth, in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation. But deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, let me read verse 14 and 15 for you. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, our text this morning deals with the matter of prayer. Now, one of the things the Lord Jesus expects all of his followers to do is to pray. If you look back up in verse number 5 of the same chapter, Jesus said this, And when thou prayest, notice it's not an if thou prayest, but it is and when thou prayest. So the Lord Jesus makes it very clear, obviously clear, that one of the things that is vitally important for every child of God to do is to pray. And then Jesus gives us a prayer as a model to go by. Actually, the reason we have this in our Bible is, is because of a request that the disciples have made to the Lord Jesus. This, this is given in response to the disciples coming to the Lord in Luke chapter 11 and verse number 1. And here's what they say. They say, Lord, teach us to pray. By the way, that is an amazing request. Having seen all that Jesus has done, it is amazing to me that these disciples would come to the Lord Jesus and of all things say, Jesus, teach us to pray. You know, if it had been me, I'd have probably said, Jesus, teach me to do a miracle. If I'd have been Peter, I'd say, Lord, teach me how to do that walking on the water thing that you did. That, to me, is amazing. Or maybe James and John would have said something like this. Lord, we got a family reunion coming up over at our house. Would you teach us that miracle about how to take a few sardines and a few crackers and feed 5,000 people? We're going to need some help with that, Lord. Teach us that miracle. Or maybe Andrew, being a fisherman, would have spoke up and said, Lord, would you teach me how to do that miracle of calming the seas in the time of a tempestuous storm. But they did not say, teach us to do miracles. They didn't even say this, Lord, teach us to preach. Well, we know one thing about Jesus. Jesus was a preacher. In fact, Jesus was the incarnate word who preached the inspired word. What a message that must have been as to hear Jesus, the walking Bible, preach on the Bible. But they didn't say, Lord, teach us to do miracles. They didn't say, Lord, teach us to, uh, to preach. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. 
Evidently, there was something about the prayer life of our Lord that intrigued his followers. And then Jesus, in response to that request, gave them this masterpiece from the mind of God on the matter of prayer. Now, we call this the Lord's Prayer. But can I get you, and I think you understand this, this is not the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is over in John chapter 17 that he prayed there in the Garden of Gethsemane. But this would be what we would call a model prayer. Or maybe we could call it like this. Maybe we should just call it the believer's prayer. And this, this prayer that Jesus teaches his disciples to pray has nothing to do with the place of praying, because I think we know you can pray any place. It has nothing to do with the posture of praying. Sometimes we pray on our knees. Sometimes we pray standing on our feet. Sometimes we pray sitting down with our eyes closed or whatever. But it has nothing to do with the place of prayer or the posture of prayer, and it has nothing to do with the period of prayer. I think we all know we ought to walk around in an attitude of a prayer. The Bible says daily, uh, evening, and afternoon will I call unto you. You know, it's a good thing to, to pray. Uh, Martin Luther said it like this, it's a good thing to let prayer be the first business of every morning and the last business of every evening, and by so doing, our day is less likely to unravel in the middle. Think about that. If we started every morning with prayer and ended every day with prayer, then maybe our days would go better in the middle. Amen. We need to pray, but it has nothing to do with the place, the period, or the posture of prayer, but it has everything to do with the pattern for prayer. Now, you don't have to do this, but if you were beginning in verse 9 with the word hour and go all the way down through verse 13 to the word amen, if you were to count those words, you would find out there are 66 words in the model prayer of our Savior. Now, you and I know that our Bible consists of 66 books. There's 39 in the Old Testament. There's 27 in the New Testament. But just suppose for just a moment that our Bible only consisted of 66 words. And the 66 words of our Bible were the 66 words of this prayer. Can I stop and tell you this? Every avenue, every base of the Christian life is covered in the 66 words of this prayer. Have you ever thought about it like this? When we pray this prayer, we're covering all the basis of the Christian life. Let me explain that to you this morning. What I'd like to do now is beginning in verse number 9 and going through the rest of this prayer, and I'll do it quickly, but there are four general truths that we learn as we pray this model prayer. Four bases that are covered for us in the Christian life. Let me begin. Look at verse 9 because verse number 9 speaks to us about a devoted follower, a devoted father. Now look at verse 9. Here's how Jesus said to begin your praying. He said, begin it like this. Our Father which art in heaven. You know, all true prayer should begin with those majestic words. Our Father. Now I get it like you. This prayer is recited by a lot of people. I mean, I get that. Sometimes when I do funerals for some reason, at the close of the funeral service, the family will request that everybody there recite or pray the Lord's Prayer. 
I used to play ball, and, and uh, I went to a public high school, and so I used to play uh, baseball in public high school. And for some reason, before every baseball game that we had in our, in our public high school, the baseball team would get together, and we, and we would recite the Lord's Prayer. But can I stop and tell you this? This prayer absolutely does you and me no good as far as this prayer or any prayer does us no good unless we can start off and truthfully say, Our Father. You see, the truth of the matter is God is not the Father of everybody. Now, God is the creator of everybody. I remember back in the 1970s, there was a doctrine that was floating through our churches. And you've got to understand, back in the 70s, that boy, things took a very liberal turn in America. And they were questioning God. And the hippie movement was saying that God was dead. And so they came up with this doctrine called the fatherhood of God. And the doctrine simply stated that God was the father of everybody. Now, let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. That's not true. God is not the father of everybody. God is the creator of everybody. God created everybody, but he is only the father of those who've accepted his son, Jesus Christ. You and I cannot pray our father unless we first of all have received Jesus as our, as our savior. You see, you can never call God father till you're born into his family. And you can never get born into his family until you first of all receive his son, Jesus Christ as your Savior. In fact, I got some really bad news for you this morning. If you're sitting in this room this morning and you've never been saved, not only is it true that God is not your Father, and I don't mean to insult you by telling you this, but I'm going to remain true to the Bible. Not only is it true that God is not your Father, can I tell you this? If you've never been saved, the devil is your Father. There's a verse in our Bible. Jesus said this right here to some very religious people. John 8, 44, Jesus said this, Ye are of your father. Say it with me. So everybody in this room has a father. Those of us who have received Jesus, our father is God. And those of us who may sit among us this morning who's not saved, the devil's your father. But I got good news for you this morning. You can get out of his family if you want to, and you can get into the family of God. In fact, when Jesus introduced it, when Jesus began this, this prayer with that phrase, our Father, he was actually introducing uh, uh, us to God in a completely, totally different way. You see, if you were to go back into the Old Testament, you'll find out that only 14 times in the Old Testament was God referred to as Father. Think about this. Moses, Abraham, and David, some of the greatest men of our Old Testament never called God their father. Never did. Of the 14 times in the Old Testament where God is called father, it is always in reference to him being the father of the nation of Israel. But in the New Testament when Jesus came on the scene, no less than 167 times in the four gospels, Jesus introduced us to God as our father. In fact, did you know this? Every time that Jesus prayed a prayer, in the New Testament, he always called God Father with the exception of one prayer. When Jesus was hanging on the cross right before he died, out of the darkness of that desperation, Jesus said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But every other occasion that Jesus prayed in the New Testament, he always called God his Father. And the word that he used to describe the Father was the word Abba. 
Now, in our day and age, you know this to be the truth, but in our day and age, the first two words that our children normally learn are mama and dada. Am I right? Well, it was no different in the Jewish culture. Only thing in the Jewish culture, their first words are Emma, Mama, and Abba, Papa, or Dada. And I think with that one phrase, when Jesus said, pray our Father, Abba, Father, he is introducing us to a very intimate, very personal kind of God. I think by saying this, Jesus here is telling us that when we come to God as his children, we come like little children to a loving, a loving father. Now look in our text. Not only did he say in verse number 9, our father, but he goes on to say this, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now why would Jesus throw that in? Our Father which art in heaven. I mean, we all know God's in heaven, right? I mean, God's sitting up there in the third heaven this morning, and he's sitting on the throne. And as I often say, he's not popping tagaments. He's not on Xanax. He's not taking nerve medication. He's not lost. He's not up there uh, chewing his fingernails off up to his elbow because this world's going crazy. God's still in control. God's still on the throne, and he's up in heaven this morning. But why would Jesus say, okay, pray this now, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Why would he say that? Well, what he was doing when he made that statement was he was wiping away two eras about God. The first era would be, I guess, what we would call the era of formality. You see, there were people back in Jesus' day, and there's still people alive in our day to some degree that think that God is some kind of an impersonal God who sits up in heaven, who has totally unplugged himself, disconnected himself from lowly humanity, and he's no longer interested in all the affairs that are going on down here on this earth. He is some kind of distant, far-off deity who's wrapped himself in the clouds of heaven and has become totally disinterested in what's going on down here in your life and in my life. Can I tell you something? Jesus said he's our Father. He is Abba Father. He is a personal God, an intimate God who cares about you and cares about me. So with those, that first phrase, Jesus wiped away the era of formality, but with that fact, second phrase, who's in heaven, hallowed be thy name, Jesus wipes away that second era called formality, familiarity. What do I mean by that? You know, in our day, isn't it sad, but we have almost become too familiar with God. What is the old saying? Familiarity breeds contempt. You know somebody you're familiar with, you're kind of relaxed around them. You're kind of casual around them. You kind of just uh, do your own thing. Or, isn't it sad? But uh, in, in, our, in, in America, we become almost too familiar with God. We're too relaxed around Him. We're too, boy, here's a word we hear a lot today, casual about God. I mean, how many churches in America this morning, and you can say, preacher, you're being judgmental. I don't mean to be. You say, preacher, you're being critical. I don't mean to be. But can I tell you something? How many churches in America have become too casual with God? So, I mean, they're going to come to church in flip-flops and short britches. 
And I mean all kind of dress this morning. And they're going to treat God like he's almost some kind of, uh, some kind of just uh, uh, old man upstairs or he's just a member of our posse. They're going to run up to God and just slap five with God or give him some dap. This, uh, to God. You know why? Because we are trying to pull God down to the level of humanity. And we have become too familiar, too familiar with God. Can I tell you something about our God? He's not some kind of a cosmic hippie sitting up in heaven this morning with long hair, tattooed skin, pierced ears, and somebody who just simply says, I understand boys will be boys, girls will be girls. No, sir, he's a holy, righteous God who art in heaven this morning. And we do well to get back to respecting the holiness of God. We do well in our churches to understand we're not coming to meet with some doting grandpa. We're not coming to meet with some kind of a cosmic bellboy who answers to every beckoning will. We're meeting with a thrice holy God who's sitting on the throne this morning. That's the reason Peter said this, 1 Peter 1, 16. God said it. God said it is written, be ye holy, for I, God, am holy. Instead of us dragging God down to our level and treating him just like he's one of the boys, we ought to be trying to lift ourselves up to the standard of holiness and understand he's a righteous and a holy God this morning. Our Father. This, this, this prayer begins with a devoted, a devoted father. But next we move, look again at verse, verse number 11. We move from a devoted father. Boy, we find out some great truths about God. He's a very personal God, but he's a very holy God. Next we find out that God is going to take care of our needs. Look at verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Now let me tell you something. We've got a real problem in our world today with something called child neglect. I mean, all over our world today, little babies are conceived and born into this world many times simply because people want to draw more money from the government. And they bring little precious children into this world. And then they neglect them. They go without food, without proper clothing, without proper medical attention. And they are neglected children. Can I tell you something about our devoted father? He can never be charged with child neglect. You know why? I'll tell you why. He loves his children so very much. He promises to provide for our daily needs. Look at verse 11. Give us this day. In other words, I can pray that today. Give us our Father which art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. By the way, that's what prayer is. Prayer is not something that we use to get our will done in heaven. Prayer is something that we use to get God's will done down here on the earth. I hope you're praying about this election. You know what I'm praying? God, your will be done about all this. God, your will be done. And then he goes on to say, hey, our devoted father will give us daily food. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. By the way, I think with that one phrase we understand, we have to acknowledge that everything that you and I have, we receive from God. Everything that we have comes to us directly from God. Look at this verse right here. And it's really the second sentence, but it says this, What hast thou that thou didst not receive? Hey, what have you got that you didn't receive it from God? What do you have that did not come from God? Everybody in this room lives from hand to mouth, from his hand to our mouth. 
That's the way it is. Everything that we got comes from God. Down to the very loaf of bread. We're talking about bread here. To the very loaf of bread that you have in a cupboard, a cabinet, uh, a drawer, on a counter, whatever. That loaf of bread you got come from God. Now, if you ask the normal person, where'd that loaf of bread come from? You know what they're going to say? I got it at the store. I went to Food Line or I went to uh, Lowe's or I went wherever, Walmart. I bought that loaf of bread from Walmart. So, preacher, I got it from Walmart. Question, where'd they get it from? Oh, you say, preacher, they got it from the bakery. I get it. But where'd the bakery get it from? Oh, you say, preacher, they got it from flour. I get that. Where'd the flour come from? Well, it come from ground up wheat. Where'd the ground up wheat come from? Well, it come from the farmer. Well, where'd the farmer get it? Well, he got it from the seed sown in the field. Well, where did he get the seed in the fields? God made the dirt. God made the seed. God caused the rains to fall. God caused the sun to shine that would germinate that seed, that would bring forth that stalk of wheat so that somebody could ground it up and put it into a form of a piece of bread and put it in a package so they could carry it to the store so that you and I would have something to eat. God did that, friend. And God gives us everything that we have. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift cometh down from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variableness, neither shadow of turning. I'm telling you, God gives us what we've got. Can I say it like this? Everything I have, I got. Now, wait a minute. I know that's bad English, but that's good preaching. Everything I have, I got. Everything I have, God gave to me. Now, somebody says this. Now, preacher, if that be true then, if we just pray that God will give us our daily food, our daily bread, our daily provisions, then here's what I'm going to do if it's true. If what you're preaching is true, I'm going to quit my job. I'm just going to lay around on the couch, and I'm just going to pray God will send me my bread in, preacher. Now, there's two things wrong with a person that thinks like that. Number one, they're crazy. And number two, they're lazy. They're crazy and they are lazy. You don't just pray this prayer and then lay down on the couch and expect God. I know God did it for Elijah. We heard about that the other night, but my name's not Elijah. Maybe, maybe he'll do it for that Elijah, wherever. But he ain't going to do it for this Timothy. So you know what he says for me to do? He said, get, up out of the, out, get off, off your lazy carcass. Get out of the bed. I'm going to give you the strength to get out of the bed. I'm going to go ahead and give you the mentality to know that it's Monday morning. I'm going to go ahead and give you the strength to get up out of bed. I'm going to give you some gas in your tank so you can get in the car, go to your job. Work your job so that on Wednesday you'll get a paycheck. So you can take your paycheck by the bank, stop by Walmart, get you a loaf of bread, and go home and get something to eat. I'm giving that to you. That's how it works, friend. Hey, can I tell you something? God never intended for you and me to look to the government to feed us. This prayer don't start off like this. Our Father who art in Washington. It doesn't start off like that. And ladies and gentlemen, can I tell you something? God expects us to go out. And I, I want to be sensitive here. I get it. I know there are some people, maybe right now, you lost your job through the process of the COVID thing. My heart is out to you. My hat's off to you. You, you do what you got to do. I get that. But can I also say this? There's a lot of people that could work that don't want to work. 
and all they want to do is lay around on their lazy backside and expect a bunch of people to give to pay their taxes so the government can pro provide for their food. I got a word for them. Get off your backside, get a job, and go to work. Because if you don't work and you can work, you ought not eat. And I didn't say that. The Bible said that. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse number 10, the last phrase there said that if any would not work, neither should he. That's God's welfare policy. If you can work, work. If you can't, we'll take care of you. I don't mind taking care of you, but it's sad when people stand on the street corner with a sign that says we'll work for food and right behind them is a big old sign from a, from a business saying, now hiring. God said, I'll give you your daily, your daily food. I will remind us all that God said he would feed the birds. Look down at chapter 6, if you will, in verse number 26. Same chapter, behold the fowls of the air. They sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Wait a minute, God feeds the birds. But come up close. He don't throw the worms in the nest. He don't throw the bugs in the nest. Those, bug, those birds get up early in the morning. They'll go out there in my yard. I see them out there. And they're pecking around. You know what they're looking for? A six-foot-long night crawler. They're looking for them a worm. They're pecking in a tree. We had the other day uh, on our house a dumb woodpecker sitting there pecking, and I just walked up to him, and he didn't move. He just looked at him. I said, are you kidding me? Look down here in these woods and all these trees down here, and you're going to sit up here and peck on my house? You get out from here, I said. And my wife had to holler at him the other day. All them woods down there in the, field, in the, in the woods down there, and he's going to peck on my house. But you got to give him his kudos. At least he's pecking. How much pecking you been doing lately? God said, I'm going to feed them birds. I'm going to take care of them. But they're not going to sit around in their, their nest all day. Are we not much better than they? God's going to feed us, but he expects us to work for the food that he provides for us. Amen. We have a devoted father. We have a daily food. Look again at verse number, verse number verse 12. We have a desired forgiveness. Look at verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. You know something? You know what sin really is? Sin is a debt that we owe. And everybody in this world owes a debt of sin. You see, we were put upon this earth to do more than just eat, sleep, breathe, and, and live. We were put upon this earth to worship, serve, obey, and love God. That's our purpose for being here. But how many of us know, man, we, felt we have fallen far, far short of that. And can I tell you something? We have incurred a, a debt. Sin is really a debt. Uh, the Bible says the whole of humanity owes a sin debt. So what happens? We are brought into the court of God. We're sued for damages. We're found guilty and ordered to pay up. The only problem is we have nothing to pay with. Therefore, we owe a sin debt to God. The only remedy for this sin is for the debt to be declared uh, fully paid, for us to declare ourselves spiritually bankrupt, cast ourselves upon the mercy of God, and ask somebody else to pay the debt off for us. That's where Jesus comes in.
Jesus comes in, died upon the cross for a debt he did not owe. That's the reason I say this is not the Lord's prayer. In verse 13, verse 12, it says, forgive us our debt. Can I tell you something? Jesus never had to pray, forgive me for my debt. He never did. You know why? He never had one. He was the perfect, holy, sinless, innocent son of God. Even when he was hanging on the cross, first statement that he made, he didn't say this, Father, forgive me. He didn't say that. You know why? He didn't have to be forgiven. But he said, Father, forgive them. He's perfect. He's holy. But thank God, as they just sang a moment ago, he left heaven. He came into this world. The Son of God became the Son of Man that we, the sons of men, might become the sons of God through the sacrifice and the shed blood. Jesus paid the debt for you and for me. Man, thank God the debt has been paid. Now, forgiveness, if you owed me $100, and you come up to me and say, Brother Tim, I'm so, so sorry. I know I owe you $100, I agree. But Brother Tim, I just got to tell you, I don't have it. And I'm so sorry. And I look at you and I say this. You know something? Just forget it. Just forget the whole thing. Just act like it didn't even happen. We're done. It's finished. It's over. Don't even think about it. My forgiveness of that $100 debt cost you nothing. But cost me $100. When Jesus looks at you and me and says, you know something? I forgive you. That forgiveness didn't cost us anything. But it cost him his life. It cost him his shed blood. There's so much that I don't know. So much. In fact, can I tell you this? There's much I don't know. Let me take a step further. There's more that I don't know than I do know. But there is one thing I'm absolutely positively sure of, and that's this. There's nobody on this earth that's so bad that they cannot be forgiven. And there's nobody on this earth so good that they don't need to be forgiven. Jesus said, when you pray, ask God to forgive you. Forgive you for your sins. But now there's a danger, and I've got to wrap this up. But look at verse 12. There's a danger in this statement. Because he said this, forgive us our debt as we Forgive our debtors. You know what Jesus is saying right there? Jesus is saying this, Lord, I'm asking you to forgive me just like I forgive others. For the hurt that I've caused you, I'm asking your forgiveness just like I forgive others who have done hurt to me. Now, wait a minute. Can I say it for you? Ouch. You know something? We're taught in the Bible that God forgives us like we forgive others? How many times has maybe somebody go out and mess up? They want to come to God and say, God, now I've messed up. I'm asking you, God, to forgive me, please, in Jesus' name. And they expect God to forgive them. And then somebody does something to them. But you, 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 forgiveness, are you kidding me? There's no way I'm going to forgive you for what you have done to me. Let me read you verse 14 and 15 and we'll be done. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Can I tell you something? If you plan on harboring bitterness in your heart and unforgiveness towards somebody, i got to give you some good advice. Don't sin. Because if you do sin, and you come to God with that sin and say, God, I'm asking you to forgive me, 
and you sit there and you won't forgive somebody else. You know what God does? And I'm going to use a Hebrew word. God looks at you and said, nuh-uh. I hate to use Hebrew words like that, but God said, nuh-uh. Southern Hebrew, nope. Northern Hebrew, no way, mine. You ain't going to do it. Because we get forgiveness the same way that we give forgiveness. Boy, I want to tell you, oh, I heard about old James Oglethorpe. He was the supposed founder of the state of Georgia. And he, and he went up to John Wesley. John Wesley was this famous Methodist preacher. And he went up to him one time. And James Oglethorpe said to John Wesley, he said, I never forgive. And John Wesley said then, you better never sin. Because we forgive as we are forgiven as we forgive. Desired forgiveness. Look at verse 13. There's a dangerous foe. I told you, man, our whole base of the, Watch this. Devoted father. Daily food. Desired forgiveness. Da-da. Dangerous. All, of the, all the bases of the Christian life are covered and this is the one prayer that says it all. Lead us not into temptation. Who is it that seeks to destroy us through temptation? It's the devil. The Bible said that God tempteth no man. God can neither be tempted, neither tempteth he. God doesn't tempt us. So we pray every day, oh God, I'm going out here into a wicked and an ungodly world. The devil has set IEDs. What are they called? Isn't that what they're called over in Afghanistan and Iraq? those explosive devices. And the devil has set these explosive devices all around us. And we pray, oh God, give me wisdom. Deliver me that I might not step on one of the temptation minds of the devil. Deliver me so that I can live for you effectively in this walk of, you know why? We got a foe, friend, a foe that is seeking to destroy our lives. Oh, may God help us every day. Let's do it. Ready? Let's pray it. Our Father. Help me. Ready? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us... Help me now. You're getting a little weak on me. And lead us not, but deliver us for thine... Man, that one prayer covers the four great bases of the Christian life. We have a Father who will give us our food, who will forgive us of our sin, and give us victory over our foe. The one prayer that says it all. Let's pray. Father, I do want to pray.